to following with their lives and we're going to use this passage. Last week, uh, Liam, if you were here, listened to what Jesus teaches. Today, following on to that, bookending with the teaching of Jesus, let's understand what Jesus did and what that means. So let's look at this passage together and I'll pray first. Help us, Father, now have our eyes open to the glory and wonder and greatness of Jesus and giving our understanding to him about why we would commit to following him and being his disciples. Help us, we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, these uh, stories we're reading tonight all happen around Lake Galilee, uh, which is a central place in Jesus' ministry. Lake Galilee is about 21 kilometres long, 10 to 11 kilometres wide, freshwater lake about 200 metres below sea level, the lowest uh, freshwater lake in the world, runs into the Dead Sea. (coughs) Three little stories. First of all, it happens in the middle of the lake when a storm comes and Jesus rescues the disciples who are fishermen and know about storms. Second one happens in the predominantly non-Jewish area or Gentile area where he heals a man possessed by many demons. Then he comes across the other side of the lake to, again, a Jewish area, maybe around um, Galilee again, and heals and raises a 12-year-old girl who had died. Now, we're dealing with someone who's great here. We're in the presence of greatness. I want to make sure you understand that. A great person... But the greatness of Jesus is more than just being a great man. We're dealing with the infinite, unquantifiable greatness of God himself. God come in flesh. And our hearts and minds need to have our understanding of Jesus dominated by that more than anything else. So what I want to do is just look at the greatness of Jesus, the surpassing extraordinary stature of Jesus the Messiah, who comes for us all a broken and fallen world, but then at the end look at the nature of how the geography that Jesus ministers in affects what he wants as a response to him as the Messiah. So the greatness of Jesus and the geography I want to look at. First of all, the greatness of Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm coming off a cold and I... We'll get through. This is the fourth sermon I've done today and my voice is getting to the end of its usefulness. Now, it starts in this story with Jesus teaching by the lake and he has a big day of teaching, as you saw last week. And by the end of the day, he's exhausted, he's tired. And what we find at the end of chapter 4 is that the disciples are taking him across the lake And where do we have a picture of Jesus? He's asleep on a cushion in the middle of the boat. Now, Lake Galilee, as I said, is 200 metres below sea level and the topography of the area, as it is today, is such that out of nowhere these huge winds can come out of nowhere and whip the lake into a fury. So you can go from calmness to three metre waves in a very quick period of time. The disciples, who are used to being on the lake, are caught up in the fury of the storm and they're fearful for their lives. We see that uh, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so they were nearly swamped. Jesus was in the the stern, sleeping on a cushion. 
the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Here is a man they're giving their lives to, just having a snooze, and they're about to go down under in the middle of the lake. He wakes from the sleep, and Jesus stands, and he speaks directly to the wind and the waves. I want to say that again. He speaks directly to the wind and waves. He doesn't say, oh God, please rescue us from this awful situation. He rebukes the wind and speaks to the waves. And immediately they quieten down. Twofold miracle. The wind stops, but normally when the wind stops, the waves take a while to die down. But there's immediate calmness everywhere. And when the disciples saw this, they were terrified. They knew enough about the Bible, read the psalm before. There's only one person, one actor in the whole of creation who controls the wind and the waves and nature itself, and that is God. And that's what they said to each other. When they saw this, they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. They had an inkling. From the very beginning, they were following someone significant. They had an inkling that maybe he was the Messiah that was promised to come and restore the world to its, from its fallen chaotic state to a new situation where the kingdom of God would be established. But then they didn't understand. This was not just a man, it was God himself. And there was unexpected and overwhelming. I, I think like you, would have been terrified if I was there that day but they began to understand who we are following is not someone to be trifled with. You cannot deal with this Jesus in a nonchalant and doesn't matter sort of way. If this is a display of the power and authority of this man, we can't just ignore him. We can't treat him with contempt. can't treat him as if he doesn't matter. This is a man who comes with all the authority of God himself over every aspect of our world. So we go from the lake, it calms down, and they make their way across to the area of the Gerasenes. As I said, there's a Gentile area. It's around where the capitalists or the ten cities were. However, when he gets across into this area, hardly anyone's there to see him. Uh, uh, In fact, only one person. After spending some time there in this Gentile area, and we know it's a Gentile area because there's a herd of pigs 2,000 pigs, there's no way you had 2,000 pigs in the Jewish area. They're unclean animals. But after the locals see what Jesus does with the Gadarene demoniac, as he's called, their response is interesting. They want him to go. Then the, in verse 17 we read, Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I always find it interesting this point for your reflection. We've just had the story of Jesus has authority over everyone and everything. He can control the wind and waves. This man has authority everywhere. And these people are seeing to leave and he complies. He does go. One of the things we've got to realise with Jesus, don't always want, we don't always want him to give us what we ask for. If you want a life without Jesus, he will comply. So what does Jesus do in this particular region? He interacts with one person, not a crowd, with one person. No crowds to welcome him. One man comes running down. A man 
who's cast out from the life of everyone else. We know he's demon-possessed. He lives life in the tombs on the outside of the town where dead bodies are. He's possessed by a legion of demons. He has superhuman, uncontrollable strength. They tried to bound him up in irons and stuff like that, but he snapped them easily. You can imagine some sort of sort of comic book character just sort of bang, nothing could pin him down. He's uncontrollable, unhinged. He's just life is just miserable. He's defaced, he's disfigured, he's subhuman. Whatever the image of God we want in the world, this is a man who's moved so far beyond that capacity to represent God at all. He's excluded from society. He's beyond help, beyond control. The demons, they have an insight straight away to who Jesus is. As soon as he came, they realised their time was up. In verse 10 we read, they begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. They realised the the one who really had control over all things, including the demonic, has now arrived. The man who actually controlled the world was about to control them. The man who came to restore the disorder broken world is now to start that work in this area. And they knew their life was now in trouble. So they asked to be sent to the herd of pigs. Impure spirits inhabiting an impure man asked to be put into impure animals. I won't go into the details of why 2,000 pigs and they all cascade down to the lake and all drown, but I want you to know not the pigs but the story of the man. This uncontrollable human being who seemed to have no capacity for anyone to deal with him has met someone who can control him. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind and they were afraid. Back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus gave a parable about there's only the strong man who come and sort of take hold of Satan's kingdom. And now we have the example of a strong man coming to take hold of Satan's kingdom. He's plundering what seemed to be the ones who controlled the world. The master of everything's arrived. And the demons knew their time was up. So what's the take home here? Well, think of it this way. Is any person in the world beyond the capacity of Jesus to reach out and control their lives? We in our minds, oh, they've lost the plot. They're beyond any capacity for anyone to help them. They've just moved so far beyond anyone's realm of thinking. They've just moved so far away. Well, the demoniac has moved so far away that people have excluded him from society. But when Jesus arrived, the uncontrollable is controlled. And so we need to remind ourselves, there's no one that Jesus deals with who's beyond hope or help. Then we come to the third story. He's told to leave and he crosses across 11 kilometres back into the other area and he gets to the other side of the uh, lake in the Jewish territory and as soon as he arrives, there's a crowd there in verse 21. 
when Jesus again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him by the lake. One person over the Gentile side, a crowd over this side. One side had no expectation on Jesus. Over this side, there's excitement. His teaching is of great interest. His healing is great, generating great enthusiasm. However, there's a problem. Lots of people, but their interest in Jesus is superficial. And we know it's superficial because these crowds disappear. As soon as he shows that the nature of his kingdom is going to be more than they can actually cotton on to and it's going to include his death, one by one they all go and he will die alone without anyone else around. So there there's enthusiasm, it's superficial. However, as he deals with the situation on this side of the lake, where before he controlled the uncontrollable, here he masters the impossible. He masters the impossible. The impossible is death itself. When he arrives, Jairus, the synagogue ruler, arrives and says, come with me quickly, I've got a 12-year-old daughter, we find she's 12 years old, and she's dying, come and heal her. He pleads with him to come, and Jesus does. It's understandable. Nothing more precious than trying to see your child at that sort of age spared the death that you don't want to come as long as if it's an age where somehow it's easier the death of any child is really hard and so he leaves when he leaves the crowd is jostling all around him but there's one woman who's been suffering for many many years an unnamed woman she's not given a name in this place but she's been bleeding profusely for 12 years. She's seen many doctors. Her situation's just got worse. But it's not just the suffering, the physical pain. She's got the suffering of exclusion from society. Someone who's bleeding like that's excluded from the community life as being unclean. So life has got this double tragedy. No healing and exclusion. But in her mind... She's determined that if I can just go and touch him, I'll be okay. And physically, though she has no sense that this could happen, this is exactly what occurred. We read at once in verse 30. At once Jesus realised the power had gone out from him, he turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? And the disciples rightly say, what are you talking about? You've got people everywhere. You see the people crowding around you? His disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done so. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. When you deal with Jesus, you need to deal with him individually and personally. You don't just deal with Jesus at a distance. You deal with him as an empty beggar with hands saying, I need your help. And this woman exactly exemplifies that. She's got nothing to bring to this except she just takes hold of him with her empty hands and this time touching him, saying, I depend upon you. But you've got to respond. When I come to our confirmation in a little while and baptism, they don't come because, oh, well, other people have done so before me or my parents 
asked me to do this or my great-parents, great-grandparents have done so before, their individual and personal response to Jesus and confronting him for themselves. But the time he's finished with this woman who's been suffering for 12 years, it's too late to help the 12-year-old girl. She's dead. The mourning started. Professional mourners have gathered in that society. Professional mourners were soon available. They were doing their wailing and weeping. They know a dead body. When they see a dead body, this girl is dead. Don't bother asking Jesus to come along. It's not worth his while. But Jesus says, take hold and just believe. So where before Jesus controlled the uncontrollable, here he deals with the impossible force of death. Could the one who masters the wind and waves master the world of death? The one who can control the demons, control the greatest threat in the world, which is death itself. And we know now that death is not the final word. Death meets its defeat. Death meets its master. And it starts in this little story. So Jesus asks Jairus and his wife and Peter and James and John to come into the little girl. He takes her hand, says, Talitha kum, which means little girl arise. And immediately she arose from the dead. They knew she's dead, but she's alive. And immediately she got up and they gave her something to eat. So three very simple ministry moments. We see the power and glory of the Lord of all the world, the Lord of all the creation, seen for who he really is. We see Jesus controlling the uncontrollable. No one's beyond the capacity of Jesus to enter into their lives and touch and deal with. And then he confronts the impossible force of death and overturns it and a master of death has now arrived in the world. There's one consistent response through all these stories to the Jesus that people interact with, and it's fear. When you deal with Jesus as he really is, it is overwhelming, overwhelming. When the disciples saw the storm being calmed, They were terrified. Verse 41 of chapter 4. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. When the folk in the Gadarene area saw the demonic restored and healed, they were afraid. We read in verse 15. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Overwhelming. No one in their right mind thought anyone would have the capacity with this man, and they were terrified in seeing that. The healed woman who'd been sick for 12 years with a terrible condition. What do we see with her? Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear. And what about the disciples and the husband and wife when they saw the 12-year-old girl raised from the dead? End of verse 42. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old 
And they were completely astonished, overwhelmed. And the question, who is this Jesus that we are dealing with here? We are rightly aware he's a man of tender compassion and kindness and deals with people individually and personally. That is absolutely true. But this is a man who has absolute authority over everyone and everything. And we need to grasp that significance of who he is to understand what it is for him to take hold of us individually and personally. With Jesus, we do indeed have the warmth of embrace, but we embrace the one who is Lord of all and King of all and Ruler of all and Saviour of all and it is a fearful thing to do with this man who so kindly condescends to give his life for us. So what's all this got to do with that subject of geography I started with? The way that Jesus people ask people to respond is interesting in this story. In the Gentile area, when the man was healed, we have a very different story than what happens in the Jewish area. Verse 18 and 20. Jesus healed the man. As Jesus was getting in the boat, because they asked him to leave... The man who had been demon-possessed begged him, begged to go with him. I can understand why. He's just been healed after having the suffering of being demon-possessed, excluded, and he wants to make sure his life's going to be okay by sticking with Jesus so that nothing bad happens again. But Jesus did not let him. He said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away, began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and the people were amazed. So somebody said, go and tell everyone about how great Jesus is. Go and tell everyone that the mercy has been shown. Go and tell your friends and and people in this area all that I've done. What about in the Jewish area after he's healed and raised that that 12-year-old girl from the dead? What did he do there? Verse 41. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Don't say anything. Go and tell everyone, don't say anything. Pretty extraordinary difference, isn't it? Why the difference? Well, it goes back to the level of expectations. They hadn't understood Jesus properly in the Jewish area. They hadn't seen that the man who had authority over everything had the capacity to lay down his life voluntarily for us. They wanted to take hold of a man for all the things he could provide, but not the saviour who would lay down his life. We live on the other side of the cross. We know that he's established this kingdom that will not fail. The restoration he's promised is now underway. We live in the age where we ourselves know the outcome of his life and death and what he's established. This is the Messiah who came to save all. This is the Messiah where geography no longer matters as it did in that age. Our circumstances are much like the gathering demoniac. Go and tell people 
of the mercy and kindness and extraordinary power of Jesus himself. And everyone can hear that. In a short little while, we're going to hear the story of our confirmees and those who are baptised declaring for themselves who they see in Jesus as the one they will follow. The disciples are starting to grasp it for themselves. We live on the other side where we can take hold of it for ourselves and understand we are the ones who can go and tell others the extraordinary nature of the Saviour who's shown us mercy, who had the power over all things but willingly laid down his life to establish the perfect kingdom that was already being demonstrated in his life so long ago. I pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his greatness over all things. We thank you, Father, the reminder of what it means to follow him, that he deals with us individually, but we need to respond to him as the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords and powerful and ruling of all things, that we would follow him with all our hearts and minds and souls. In his name we pray. Amen.